Father in heaven, we're thankful today that we can again come and study your word. We're thankful that you want to tabernacle with us and want to be in sanctuary with us. And we're delighted that all the way through the scriptures we see this message and this motif again and again. And now as we talk about some of the practical aspects of what you want to see and how you want to accomplish it, we ask that your spirit would draw especially near. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, Really enjoyed being here at GYC talking about the sanctuary. And one of the aspects of the sanctuary uh, that we want to close with now is the sanctuary and earth's final generation. Um, God likes to talk about generations. Uh, There used to be a song called Talking About My Generation. And God's singing that song again and again kind of plaintively because he's never had a generation that really has followed him. The first generation, uh, 100% of them went kind of bad. The second one, we always say, well, the good old days, the, bad, the good days were really good. They were actually pretty bad because the second generation, 50% of the kids ended up killing the other ones. And then it was downhill from there. But God thinks in terms of generation. In fact, he is called, it says in Isaiah 41.4, every generation. So every generation that comes, he says, I want that generation to be mine. And he wants them to be faithful. Wicked generations, like for instance the Amorites, whose iniquity it says was not yet quite full, uh, they demonstrate their iniquity. And righteous generations do as well. Uh, he limits the genetics of generations, of, of a generation's iniquities to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, you know, <laughs> in your family line. I, there's an interesting, uh, uh, movie on youtube right now called the ghost in your genes that goes back and studies all of how how things are passed genetically and uh it's interesting how it's documenting actually what the bible says now but his desire really for every generation and for the entire situation that has caused consternation is restoration his desire is to restore the edomites and the egyptians it says that they could enter back in to, to uh, the congregation of the righteous in the third generation. So he, even though they were Egyptians and Edomites, and believe me, Edomites are really bad. Edomites was like Dog the Edomite, you know. That was his name. He was the one that killed all the priests back there in Samuel. And you remember Herod? He was an Edomian, which was a cross between an Edomite and an Israelite. And he tried to kill Jesus. And remember Haman? He was an Edomite. All through history, the Edomites have been against God's people, and yet God says, I want to bring them back. I want to bring the Egyptians back. Bastards, Moabites, the Ammonites can enter in again after the 10th generation. Moabite means, who is my father? And uh, literally, that means, uh, you know, they didn't know who their dad was. Because in some of the sanctuary services, the way that you would worship God was you would go to the sanctuary with someone who was not your spouse. You would then go to eat a nice meal in the sanctuary. You would then worship God together. And then you would consummate that great act with someone who is not your husband or wife. And so naturally, in that particular culture, they were called Moabites because they didn't know who their father was. And when that kind of situation came about, he said, well, after 10 generations, you'll probably get that (laughs) figured out. But God wanted them to be back. You know, see, God's desire is, I would that they be with me where I am. So he wants to bring us into restoration. He wants to have an upright generation. Psalm 112, verse 2 says, that delights in his commands. He he wants to have that kind of generation that he can bless. A generation to bless. And he's been looking for that. A blameless and harmless generation that stands and shines in darkness and shows forth his glory. You know, in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation, it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. So, now, God has always had faithful representatives. In fact, in almost every generation, in each generation, there's been faithful representatives. Uh, signal men or women. Abel, Noah, Joseph, Caleb and Joshua, Jonah, David, all of these were faithful. Some of them fell, but then became faithful. But they're pointed to in the Bible specifically as being faithful in their generation. 
But he desires to have an entire faithful generation. A generation of youth for Christ. A generation of adults for Christ. That's what he desires. Does the Bible indicate that there will be such a generation? Sometimes people say, well, you Adventists, and effectively the lunatic friends of Adventism are the only ones that talk about faithful generations. But as a matter of fact, David saw this generation, so maybe David was on the lunatic friends, having written a hundred of the Psalms and being one of the pattern men of the Bible. His name means beloved. Every time someone's baptized, we say, Jesus said, this is my beloved with whom I'm well pleased. David is always a name that people name their children after because he was a man after God's own heart. And in Psalm 24, 3-6, notice what he says. Who shall ascend in the hill of the Lord? By the hill of the Lord is the sanctuary. Or who shall stand in the holy place? He that hath clean hands, that's the cleansing of the sanctuary, and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is, what to say next? The generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, Jacob, Selah. Which means, of course, two things. One is think about it, and the other means kick it up a notch. That's what it literally means. It's a musical term. (laughs) Kick it up a notch. So, um, do you see that text? To kick it up a notch means, you see, there were these songs of ascent. And at the sanctuary, there were stairs. And every time you climbed a stair, you would kick it up a notch. Selah. And they would sing a new song. And then they would sing another song. And then they would sing another song. The songs of ascent. So David, when he wrote those psalms, he was saying, we need to kick it up a notch, folks. We need to go closer and closer to God. And finally, it's not going to be just the priest. But it will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Amen? Amen. So, is this doctrine of a generation, a faithful final generation, is it biblical? I'm just trying to see if it is. That's what my question was. Jesus pictured such a generation as well. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, he had the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, look, I want you to have the kind of attitude that shows that you have the character you need. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the pure in heart, cleansed, for they shall... See God. So those who are pure in heart will see God. In other words, they have the right attitudes. And because they have the right attitudes, then they're the right similitudes. They're the salt of the earth. Salt was always put with every single sacrifice in the sanctuary. So this means they're living sacrifices. They're salt. They're preserving the character of God. And then he said, you will be light. That's lamps. You, you are the light of the world. That's another sanctuary metaphor. You will be a city set on the hill. That means on top of a hill, on top of Mount Zion. So David says, I want, uh, who's going to enter into the holy mountain? And Jesus says, I want someone that will enter in the holy mountain. And then he goes on, he says, look, you have heard it said by the Pharisees and the others, but I say to you. In other words, he said... Matthew 5, verse 20, Except your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you have no part with me. I did not come to to do away with one jot or one tittle of the law, but to fulfill it. Where are you going to fulfill it, Lord? In you, he says. And then he goes to the Ten Commandments, actually six of them, and he ends in chapter 5 and verse 48, and he says, Be ye therefore perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. So he wants this generation that will do that. Their lives will be perfected. Just sort of like Lexus, the relentless pursuit of perfection. By the way, if someone tells you they're perfect, they're not. They're a perfect disaster if they do that. Because if they tell you you're perfect, then everything they do is perfect, which means you're in trouble. Because if they take your money, it's okay because they're perfect. God usually keeps perfection from the people that are perfected. Because uh, we, uh, we still have a... You know, we have a, a our nature to deal with so here you have uh, the right attitudes uh, the right similitudes they're on top of the hill they have god's law filled in their hearts they have victory over sin and in that particular passage he says they do it this way but you don't do it that way not this but that he says again and then wise man then it says those that he ends up his message he says the wise man built his house upon the rock remember right there on the top of that mountain as moses entered in he was given a rock 
that had all of God's law written on it. And the wise man builds his house on the rock, not these little pebbles of his own thing. Right? So he's living on the basis of the Ten Commandments. In other words, not those that come to me and say this or that, but those that do the will of the Father in heaven, it says in Matthew chapter 5. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the final generation. Jesus pictured it as well, and he said to his disciples, that's what I want. And that's what he worked to do with his 12 disciples. Peter pictured this generation as well. And this is what Peter, now, by the way, Peter means, uh, of course, stone. Uh, his name was uh, Simon Bar-Jonah. When Jesus met him, he said, oh, yes, you're Simon, son of Jonah. <laughs> but I call you Cephas. I'm going to call you stone because I want you to be a rock. I want you to be built on the rock. I am the Petros. You are the Petra. I'm the Petra, you are the Petros. You're the rolling stone, but get built on the rock. I want you to have that experience that I talked about in Matthew chapter 5. And so Peter finally gets it. And this is then what he says. But ye, talking to the New Testament church, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. uh, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. So Peter says, look. You need to be a chosen generation. By the way, that word chosen literally means those that are choosing. Uh, And it's not just one choice. Uh, God is not the author of this once saved, always saved, which is creeping in even to Adventism. I see it even in the titles of of events that are coming up. Um, You know, different youth congresses and different things that, 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 that minimize the gospel to one choice, and then they think that God takes away your freedom of choice. He doesn't do that. You have to keep choosing. So, in our last hour, we then saw that he has this pattern, he has this plan, and where do we live on this plan? We live right here in the day of at-one-ment. He wants the heavens to be cleansed and a cleansed people on earth. That is the theology of the last generations. Okay, now um, we also notice that as you go through the book of Revelation, you see all of these things kind of culminating. Christ fulfilled the ministry of the outer court. We also need to die to self and be baptized. Then he went with the seals and then with the trumpets. The seals were the different lights going through time, and or, or, or rather, uh, the seals were going through time here, and the trumpets were going through time, showing his judgments against the wicked through time. And then he, the, he is the light of the world, and the light was going throughout the time all the way down to the Laodicean church. But then ultimately, you get to chapter six, and you move from the holy place experience to the most holy place. And Jesus is now living in that most holy place. He wants a people that are willing to enter in that environment with him. He wants a generation that, not just one person, but a generation that are able to go from zero to 60, or to 160, to go right into his presence. So through the book of Revelation, we see him moving. The lamp stands in the holy place, inaugurating the heavenly sanctuary in chapter 4 and 5, going to the altar of incense in chapter 6, verse 9, going to the incense and prayer, chapter 8, verse 3, putting uh, uh, anointing the horns of the oil, uh, the horns of the altar, rather, in chapter 9, verse 13, measuring the temple in Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. That's now moving to the most holy place. Focusing on the Ark of the Covenant, chapter 11, verse 19. Sending, sending angels with three angels' messages and even more, Revelation 14, uh, uh, verse 15 and 17. And then in chapter 15, opening the temple so you can see that probation is about to close. Then having that white throne judgment where everyone who's ever lived comes before it and is shown whether or why they are there or not there. And then finally, being even around the throne of God, the saints in the holy city. So God wants a generation that are ready to do that. Now John describes this generation in Revelation 7, 1 to 4. And what's it say, Revelation 7, 1 to 4? Let's look at it real quickly because you may not have it memorized here. 
And let's look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 1 to 4. Why don't you look at it with your own little meaty eyeballs. Uh, if they have no meat, then they probably you can't see Revelation 7, 1 to 4. Anyway, so don't worry about it too much. He that has an ear, let him hear. Um, 7, 1 to 4. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow the earth, the sea, or any tree. By the way, people are pictured as trees. Daniel was a tree and God stumped him. Had him grow up right again. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, excuse me. I was corrected. I was reproofed. They reproved me and I've taken it. There's a promise. Turn up my reproof and you will, I will pour out my spirit on you. Verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the sea, or from the east, I can't even see anymore, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. Now this is the doctrine of that final generation. And then it's kind of described as the 144,000 next. And then it goes through all of the 12 tribes. And you know the interesting thing? All of those particular sons uh, that are mentioned, the children of Israel, they all messed up big time. But then they addressed the character flaws in their life and they came back to Joseph. And they were accepted by Joseph, a type of what was going to happen at the end of time. You see that? It was a generation that really went amok. But then they came back. And that's what God wants to see at the end of time. You see, they're called servants. And Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 6 says that a servant is one that does the will of God from the heart. They're sealed. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 16 says, Seal up the law in my disciples, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this, there's no light in them. So they're light-filled. They're sealed. They have God's law in their hearts. Revelation 7, 1 through 4 is alluding to the fact that they're servants and that they're sealed and that they're satisfied. They're singing. They're rejoicing. The 144,000, they sing a new song. And it's not like they've totally kicked it up a notch. Because in Revelation chapter 14, what do we see? Verse 1 through 6. Look at it. This generation of people, they're not just at the base of the mountain like the children of Israel who would send Moses, the one representative from their generation up there. No, they're all going up the mountain. Mr. and Mrs. and brother and sister. Look at verse 1. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him uh, 144,000 having their father's name written on their foreheads. Their frontal lobes are no longer filled with cognitive distortions. They're right right there in the throne room of heaven. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang as it were a new song before the throne. See, it's a new song. That means it's never been sung before, because it's a song that can only be sung by the whole generation that's singing it together. So there they are in this choir singing together. Before And they're singing before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So here you have this picture. In chapter 14, verse 1 through 6, you have the description of that generation. And chapter 6 through the end of the, through, through the, end of the chapter is the message But notice, they're on the top of the mountain. That is, in the most holy place, as we've learned, where Moses went up there into the top of the mountain. They sing a unique unique song, and it's described in chapter 15, the song of Moses and the Lamb. In other words, all the Old Testament types and then the New Testament type coming together. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Uh, Exodus 15, 1 and 2. And it says they are virgins. In other words, they're undefiled. James chapter 4 verse 4 says, You adulteresses and adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity? So every one of us are not virgins in that sense. And we need to be re-virginized. And that's what happens when we go up the mountain. 
This is a very hopeful message to someone who's messed up morally, but also to all of us who have messed up spiritually. They're undefiled. And they're undefiled by women. That's by all the apostate churches as well, if you take the spiritual application. And then the summary text comes in Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Turn it backwards and it really helps us. They have Jesus' faith that's given to them as a fruit of the Spirit, a gift of the Spirit that helps them then keep His commandments and obedience is a gift as well. And as a result of that gift, because obedience is the fruit of faithfulness, it says in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 16, obedience to the faith. Faithfulness that leads to obedience in the context of being patient. Patient endurance, that's also a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, right? Which is a lot of patience. So every single one of those is they're anointed with the Spirit. The Spirit gives them faith. The Spirit gives them obedience. The Spirit gives them the fruits of the Spirit. So this is that final generation. How many of you can see that this idea of generations is a biblical thing? Have I used anything but the Bible? No. I mean, a little of my personality. Let's excise that from everything. But, And as a result of this, the Bible describes them, Revelation chapter 18, 1 to 4, as filling the earth with his glory. The fourth angel's message, if you will. Filling the earth with glory. Yes. Sister, this is the first time you've been in the seminar? There are five seminars that we've established that. Because at the top of the mountain in Sinai is where Moses went up. That was a sanctuary. And then all the way through there. So get the tapes, listen to those, and I go through it really in depth. So there's a little summary here. I can see why you would be maybe a little confused. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what's going to happen then in that heavenly sanctuary. All right. For some reason, it's not letting me go forward. Oh. (laughs) Oh, wait. No wonder. (laughs) Trying to save me. (laughs) Trying to save me from the wrath to come. (laughs) So, (laughs) moving on.com. We have... uh, Now let's apply this message. For the four horses of the apocalypse. Diet, dress, drums, and dating. (laughs) You see, you have... You have, you have this people that will enter into where? To the most holy place in the very presence of God. This generation is spoken of. And when the, when, the, when the high priest went there, it was not with any cavalier attitude. Everything about his diet, everything about his dress, everything about his decorum, everything about his relationship was scrutinized. And it was an issue of public record. And he was representing the entire generation when he went in there. But at the end of time, the entire generation goes in. Amen. Okay? So let's talk about dress first. (laughs) Let's get it out of the way. (laughs) Moses, or the priests, had to dress a particular way. In Exodus chapter 28... And many other places, the priest's dress was elucidated. And before Moses went up the mountain, he told the people to wash their clothes and have clean clothes. And I'm sure his were clean as well. And then he went up the mountain. As you remember, he was up there for 40 days and he received the law of God. Some believe that was on a Sabbath and they believe that he came down on a Sunday. They have the chronology all worked out. But when he came down, he came down and he found a cafe church. I mean, a calf church. That's decaf right there. As he came down the mountain, notice how the servant of the Lord describes it. In, the, in deep sadness, the people had buried their dead. 3,000, remember he, the, he, they were slain because of what they had done. 3,000 had fallen by the sword. A plague had soon after broken out in the encampment and now the message came that the divine presence would no longer accompany them. In other words, the sanctuary moved away from them because they had moved away from God. They were going to put the sanctuary out there in the field somewhere. 
they needed to come to the sanctuary instead of the sanctuary being with them. Jehovah had declared, I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. And the command was then given to the children of Israel to put off their ornaments from thee, that I may know what to do with thee. And there was mourning throughout the encampment, and in penitence and humiliation, the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horward onward, is what it says literally. Exodus 32 and 33, and then Patriarchs and Prophets is built on those two chapters. Start with Exodus 32 and 33, it's all right there. So, dress was completely related to whether or not they would be able to enter back into the sanctuary experience. How many can see that clearly? So what would they do with those ornaments they put off? They gave them to the sanctuary. They gave them to the sanctuary. You know, it's interesting when you study this, that the laver, which is a symbol of where we would have baptism, you know what the laver was made out of? The mirrors of the women. And the men, I suppose, if they had them. It was as if it was saying, it's more important for me to see you face to face than for you to see my face. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I think you should wash your face. And if you don't, I'll probably tell you about it. But the point was right there. Now, notice how the New Testament picks up on this. Remember, Peter said he wanted to, to see a chosen generation. Notice what he says about this. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, right? All those things. And what's he say then about dress? Chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, in terms of adorning. Whose adorning, let it not be that of outward adorning, of plaiting of the hair, or wearing of gold, or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, that which is not corruptible, even of the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. So God wants us to be decked in, not decked out. And this is the picture that he wants. In other words, he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And he was talking about all heart experience. Now, I want to show you something interesting. You know, God, uh, I want to say this carefully. My brother here reminded me there's two different kinds of leaven. There's a leaven that's good, and there's a leaven that's bad. You know what the servant of the Lord says about jewelry of any kind? Even wedding rings? She, she says that's a leavening process. Do you think she means that's a good leaven or a bad leaven? Okay. When you had leaven, did you get to go to the sanctuary? No. If you went to the sanctuary with leaven, <clears throat> you became unleavened, if you know what I mean. You understand what I'm saying? Is this a time to be, let me level with you about leavening. Is this a time to, 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 be, to just say, oh, I think it's okay? I don't care who tells you it's okay. If you know it's a leavening process, how many of you think it's probably not good to do it? Now, let me tell you something. I read recently an interesting thing I want to show you. And this is, uh, like I said, the four drums of the apocalypse of Revelation. I'm just going to be honest with you. But I want to use some interesting history. The Puritans were a group of people that wanted to be pure inside and out. So they tried to purify their church. But they got kicked out over something. And I might get kicked out of here today, but let me show you what they got kicked over. In the summer and autumn of 1604, after Parliament had been discontinued, both parts of the strategy came into play. Bancroft, who was the General Conference president over there, and sometimes James himself, that was President Bush, goading on his bishops, began to harry. That doesn't mean they got harry. It means to push them. Those Puritans who would not sign up to the idea that the surplice, the cross, confirmation, the use of rings and weddings, and all other remnants of the symbolic religion in the English church were perfectly good and holy practices. In other words, the Puritans said, they're not good, get rid of them. And so James and the others, they got upset. They said, well, wait a minute, we're going to have to start harrying you a bit. Now notice what happens. Those who wouldn't sign, in other words, or subscribe as the word went, in other words, the conformists, were expelled, a total of 80 ministers from a body of about 8,000. 99% of the Church of England, that is the ministers of the church in England, in other words, thought conformity the better path. Among the 1% who did not, another among that 80 who did not, 
were those who would in time become the leaders of the Pilgrim Fathers. How many think that's a powerful statement? They said, we want pure religion, and we don't even want that little leaven of a wedding ring, and they got kicked out of their church. And so they went to America, and they said, I said goodbye to the ring, but I want to go to a place where eventually freedom will ring. Now, you might say to me, Don, this is the apocalypse, the four horsemen, and I'm about to kill you. But before you kill me, let me testify, as Stephen did, (laughs) that the early Advent movement had the same position. Let's listen to Ellen White. Have you heard of her? Paul Harvey has. Listen to what she was writing to a lady. Mrs. D, a lady accompanying a position in the institution, was visiting Sister S's room one day when the latter took out of her trunk a gold necklace and a chain and said she wished to dispose of this jewelry and put the proceeds in the sanctuary, or in the Lord's treasury. Said the other, why do you sell it? I'd wear it if it was my mind. Why, she replied Sister S, when I received the truth, I was taught that all these things should be laid aside. I still teach that as a minister. I never baptized anyone with any kind of rings or jingling things ever anywhere on their bodies. Uh, maybe a pacemaker, but well, that's about it. <laughs> Surely they're contrary to the teachings of God's word. And she cited her here to the words of the apostles, Paul and Peter on this point. So she gave a little Bible study. In like manner, also women who adorn themselves in modest apparel and same faithfulness and sobriety, we know the text, not with embroidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but be- what becometh a woman professing godliness with good works, whose adorning let it not be that of the outward adorning of the plaiting of the hair, of the wearing of gold, or the putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. Do you notice the same paradigm? Not this, but that. Not this, but that. Now, how does Ellen White respond to this? In answer, the lady displayed a gold ring on her finger. Uh-oh given to her by an unbeliever. Ooh. Could be an engagement ring, could be a wedding ring, could be just a friend giving you a ring. I hope it's not just a friend because the husband might get a little mad, right? Oh, that's... I'm thinking it's one of the two, right? And she said she thought it was no harm to wear such things. We're not so particular, she said as formerly. Our people have been over-scrupulous in their opinions on the subject of dress. The ladies of this institution wear gold watches and chains and dress like other people. It is not good policy to be singular in our dress, for we cannot exert so much influence. So how does Ellen White respond to that reasoning? We inquire, says Ellen White, if this is in accordance with the teachings of Christ. Are we to follow the word of God or the customs of the world? Our sister decided it was the safest to adhere to the Bible standard. Will Mrs. D and others who pursue a similar course be pleased to meet the result of their influence in that day when every man shall receive according to his works? God's word is plain. Its teachings cannot be mistaken. Shall we obey it just as he has given it to us? Or shall we seek to find how far we can digress and yet be saved? She even talks about being saved in relationship to this. Would that all connected with our institutions would receive and follow the divine light and thus be enabled to transmit light to those who walk in darkness. The reason she didn't want people to wear jewelry was because if you do, you're not as effective in transmitting light to others. Because when you give a Bible study and you read to them, not with gold or this or that, and they go, why are you wearing gold? And you go, ah, ah, or you just don't even study that. You understand? Notice here what she closes with. Conformity to the world is a sin which is sapping the spirituality of our people. And seriously interfering with their usefulness. It is idle to proclaim the warning message to the world while we deny it in the transactions of the daily life. And she's only talking about a gold chain and a ring. And if she's only talking about it, why not just take it off? Was that a big thing? You take it off to get on the airplane. I think there's probably a metal detector on the way to heaven, too. (laughs) So much for dress. Okay, now you're still all here. I thought you'd all be gone by now. (laughs) (laughs) Moses came down from the temple. And uh, 
His face shone, it says. How many of you would like to trade in whatever you're wearing in terms of adornment for a shining face from being in the presence of God? It says that his, turning his face shone, that word is Quran, not like the Quran, but which literally is translated to shoot out horns. That's where we get this idea of like a halo. But the, uh, the Michelangelo, who wasn't really a Bible student, he thought it meant this, and so he put horns on the top of Moses' head. <laughs> he based it on the Latin Vulgate that says his face was horned. But really it meant he was shining with brightness. Amen. How many of you want to shine with that kind of brightness? Amen. I'll tell you what, if I could trade all of the ornaments in the world for that brightness, I'd like to have that brightness. Have you ever heard David Gates tell the story how he's on a plane and his face started to shine? Well, listen to it sometime. (laughs) So what we need is what I would like to call, if we want to be, we need to have atmospheric pressure. By the atmosphere surrounding us, every person with whom we come in contact is consciously or unconsciously affected. This is a responsibility from which we cannot free ourselves. Our words, our acts, our dress, our deportment, even the expressions of the countenance has an influence that no man can measure. Every impulse thus imparted is a seed sound that will extend we know not whither. If by our example we aid others in the development of good principles, we give them power to do good. In turn, they exert the same influence on others, and they on still others. Thus, by our unconscious influence, thousands may be affected. Thousands affected. You know, I don't, I don't wear a ring. You know what I have to do instead? I talk about my wife. Every time I sit down next to a lady, I just say, let me tell you about my wife. I pull out the pictures. I talk. It strengthens my marriage because I'm confessing her before men and women. <laughs> and then I know that, she, that the, the Father will confess my name in heaven. <laughs> it's just one big confessional after another. <laughs> you know, when you become a Christian, you just say, okay, I'm a Christian. I'm going to wear a cross. I'm never talking about it again. They can just see the cross, and that's it. You should be wearing a sanctuary anyway. But I say you just wore that. That doesn't work. You have to confess your Christianity. Yes or no? Don't reduce it. Try and reproduce it. Is this just Ellen White and the Puritans? No. Jesus said you're judged according to every word, by every action, by your dress, by your deportment, by the food and drink, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And even the countenance. So get the notes because I got a lot to go through. So then, they're pictured as sanctuary people. You know Isaiah chapter 3, it shows all the daughters of Zion who have all their jangling jewels and everything. But then in Isaiah 4, we often don't read this. This is what you can have instead of that. The Lord will create about every dwelling of Mount Zion and over assemblies a cloud and a smoke by day and a shining flaming fire by night. That's the sanctuary. How many of you want that over your house? Over your job? Over your workplace? For over all the glory there will be a covering. There will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat. And a place of refuge. And for a shelter from storm and rain. Wow. So trade in your trinkets for God's treasures. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's move on now to diet. I'm hungry after that, aren't you? Let's see what we can and cannot eat. Moses, as he was leading people from the children of Israel, he would give them water, and then also, or God would give them water from the rock through Moses, and then they'd also have manna, which at first they said, what is that? Which is what lots of people say when they see healthy food. What is that? They've never seen it before. What is that? It's not a Big Mac. Now let me show you something that's very fascinating. When you look at the sanctuary... When you look at the sanctuary, outside the sanctuary, this is the sanctuary, this is a grayscale. <laughs> anyway, outside the sanctuary, unclean things. The Egyptians ate all kinds of unclean things. But when you came to the sanctuary, you never brought Miss Piggy and her friend. You never brought them. They could not enter the sanctuary, the outer court. Instead, you brought clean animals. Only clean animals represented Christ. But when you went into the holy place, sometimes the priest would take a little blood in here and sometimes a little blood in here and sometimes eat a little meat in here, just a tiny bit. That's all the farther it went in the sanctuary. But then something was introduced. It was the transitional food section. (laughs) Because as Jesus turned the lights on, then you saw what was on the table. And what was on the table? Complex carbohydrates. And grapes, grape juice. 
Can you say amen to that? Woo, I'm getting hungry already. And then when you went into the most holy place, there was no meat whatsoever. Instead, there was just almonds, which the scientists now tell us is the perfect nut. It has everything. I'm not saying you're the perfect nut. But uh, almonds, and it says the man, uh, that the manna was made out of coriander seed. Now look at this. It's fascinating. Now, this is stretching it, but there was also Aaron's rod that budded. There's your greens. So, as you look in the most holy place. All right. As you look in the most holy place, what do you have? You have this movement from unclean foods all the way back to the diet as given in Genesis. Woo! Back to Eden. Back to the Eden sanctuary. How many can see how the sanctuary message informs us about our diet? Now let me ask you a question. Does God love people out here? Does God love people here? Does God love people here? Uh, does God love people here? He definitely does. So, he, but he wants people to move along the process. Yes or no? When you get to heaven, are you going to hunt caribou? No. That would be a big boo-boo. So, you know, sometimes... I didn't even mean that to be funny. It just kind of rhymed. Um, you know, sometimes people ask me, why did Jesus eat fish then? Thinking they have a good question. But it's only in a question that comes from perhaps not understanding the sanctuary. Because on earth, Jesus did eat clean animals. And he cooked it for others. But then notice what happens. Do you think up in heaven he's eating fish? Do you think he's fishing by the, in the, in, in, out there with God the Father and saying, Hey, uh, you got the, uh, the ski nautique, we're going to go skiing, then we're going to do a little fishing? No. So here he heads up there and you start seeing in heaven a different diet. In fact, in, in, in Revelation you see all the fruits and everything else. That's a food for thought for you. You know, the scientists, NASA, they, they like to spend our money on, they did a research project. They said, if we have a space station, how will we have meat up there? Because they want to take their meat to the space station. But they, what they fell into a, a problem with was how to build a space suit for a cow. And they decided that the horns and everything would be, be too, too difficult. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. You see, we so much like what... We were not originally created to eat, that we almost would do anything. I want to take my cows, my stripples, to heaven. No, my friends, I don't even think meat dialogues will be in heaven. <laughs> now, let me tell you something. This particular sanctuary diet, and I know some of you have some questions, but I have so much to say, you're going to have to ask me afterwards. These, this particular diet, let me ask you the question. That diet of the most holy place, is it the best diet or the worst diet? 258 studies are done on Seventh-day Adventists. They're the longest living people in the world. And there are three groups they study in those studies. Those that are completely vegan, those that are lacto-oval, and those that are falling off the wagon big time in all kinds of areas. Or those that eat all kinds of meats, and then those that really fall off the wagon. And you know what happens? Those that get closest to the Genesis 129 diet, they live the longest. Surprise! But we had to wait for Oxford to say it. And there's a book from Oxford. You can read all those studies. Here's one particular picture of proof of the scientific basis for that diet. After 32 months on a plant-based diet, this artery, which was completely filled with all, two all-beef patties, special sauce, pickles, lettuce, onions, and a sesame seed bun, now is completely opened up. My friends, if he can cleanse the heavenly sanctuary, he probably could clean up your coronary arteries. Amen. Now, this is why Ellen White then says this. Among those who are waiting for the coming of the Lord, meat eating will eventually be done away with, I should say. Flesh will cease to form a part of their diet. Amen. Is she so radical or is she just biblical? No. She's just biblical. That's all. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we do his will on earth, we stay on earth longer. So we can do more damage to the enemy before we go to heaven. You're still with me. I can't believe it. Both doors are open. So we've got dress, diet, now drums. 
Now, my friends, I've got good news for you. There will be all kinds of drums in heaven. Eardrums. <laughs> so, <laughs> there may be other kind of drums, too. I don't th- but I just use it as an acronym. I, I don't, I'm not against... I mean, I'm not against the timpani and all those different kind of things. There's, there's no, no problem with some aspects of drums. But I, I just use this to introduce music because it's kind of an acrom, acronym and not acrimonious, but an acronym that helps me. Moses, when he came down the mountain and they were having the cafe church, I mean, the uh, in, worshiping the calf, what happened? He turned them into a decap church really quickly, first off, right? He said, we want you to drink the gold. We don't want it outside, inside. We're going to have you drink it. And then he also noticed something else. What happened when he was coming on Exodus 32? The Lord said unto Moses, go get thee down, for thy people have corrupted themselves. Well, what that they corrupted themselves, among other things. Verse 17 says, And Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, and he said, There's a noise of war in the camp. And he said, No, it is hip-hop music. No. He said, It is not the voice of them that shout for the mastery, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome. It's the voice of them that sing that I do hear. It's die-tunes, not i-tunes. So... The second thing is he comes down from the presence of God, where he hear the singing of the holy angels, perhaps. He comes down and he sees and he hears that and he instantly can tell the difference between good and bad music. Now, Joshua, he couldn't. He's going, it's war, it's war, which is okay. I mean, I wish a lot of people could even make that distinction. But, you know, I'll ask people today, is there good and bad music? And some people have got to go, no. <laughs> Moses could make that distinction when he came down from the sanctuary. And you and I need to make the distinction between good and bad music. Let me just say for the record, this te- story, if it teaches us anything, it teaches that, that there is good music and there is bad music. How many of you would agree with that? I always ask every musician that ever comes to my church, I don't have a church anymore, but whenever I'm involved, I say, is there good music and bad music? I can just tell instantaneously if I'm going to have a problem or not. They'll say, well, it depends on who's listening to it. I said, well, let's say God's listening. (laughs) Because I don't have a lot of time to talk, you know. i got things to do. So what did God do as a result? Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. So what happens? He says, wait a minute. Here comes the Levites. So what did he do with the Levites in terms of music? David spoke to the chief of the Levites. and, And David spoke to the chief of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be the singers with instruments of music, psalteries and harps. So in other words, the Levites were put in charge of the sanctuary service because they had rejected the... The, the, the calf church and they had rejected the music of the church and the dress of that apostate church or the lack of dress of that apostate church and Shania was the chief of the Levites he was chief for song isn't that interesting now some people really get irritated you can't be in charge of the music everybody should be in charge of the music I'm glad that GYC has a committee that goes through every piece of music that's played at the convention and I'm glad that they take this seriously. Some of the churches I go into that I've had to preach in, these are living sacrifices I hear going on before I get up to speak. I mean, these, it, I went to one church. They said, we want to introduce to you the drummer from um, Elton John's band. He's with us today. Yay! Everybody's clapping. I'm like, Elton John? The guy's a homosexual. The guy is totally out there. I'm not trapping for his drummer, and now I have to preach afterwards? And then the guy he was accompanying was singing about how his mother was in heaven, that had died. So I got up, and I preached a sermon that was not in my textbook. I preached a sermon called, Choose Ye This Day Who You Will Serve. And I made the point, I made the point that the people were being asked to choose, not the leaders, because they had royally messed up by that point. Now, I'm thankful that there are faithful leaders. 
And I've talked to the people in charge of the music policy at the general conference. I'm thankful for the confidence. I have great confidence in Ted Wilson and how he's written about that subject. But let me tell you something. There's a difference between the faith and practice of people many times. I'm thankful for the purity of, uh, of the doctrine of the Adventist church. Now the people need to be pure like the doctrine, only by God's grace and through his faith. The things you have described, now bringing it up to the alpha of apostasy in the Adventist church in Indiana, which was a big band, sort of like a Lawrence Welk band with a drum. The Lord has shown me would take place just at the close of probation. Every uncouth thing would be demonstrated. There will be shouting and drums and music and dancing. The senses of rational beings will become so confused that they cannot be trusted to make right decisions. You know, in a church where that music is going on, and I've had the, the occasion to preach in many, and I, I would welcome any invitation, but I just realized that for about ten minutes after that music's over, I have to do something else. And I usually will sing a few hymns to try and rewrite the hard drive. You see, there's a philosophy of music in the New Testament that says this, and I'm not going to try and apply this for you. You have to. But let me show you what the New Testament says. Let the word of Christ, what should rule our actions? The word of Christ. Dwell in you richly. That's number one. And so this word, the ministry, music then comes out of a ministry of the word. And the word, by the way, is every inspired word of God, which can also mean the spirit of prophecy. Is it inspired or not? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms. Who wrote most of the psalms? What were most of the psalms about? The sanctuary. And in hymns and in spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to God. That's a philosophy of music. Let the music be such that it teaches wisdom. That's enough about music. How many of you can see the principles there? Apply, then fly. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I guess I went backward here. I want more, more punishment there. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven in regards to diet, dress, and drums. Okay. <laughs> Not for the faint-hearted, we move on to our last. Vitamin D. Uh, vitamin D supplements here, okay? I just want to make a point. Mm. The first point I want to make is, I think people should get married. And I think they should be fruitful and multiply. And I think that is the most obeyed command God has ever given. I want to tell you I rejoice in being married. I miss my wife right now. You're all beautiful. You're all kind. But you're the kind of people that I don't want to see much more of. <laughs> Not because of you, but because I want to see my wife. So, having said that, now let me talk about dating. <laughs> the high priest... And the priests in the temple were held to the highest moral standards in Israel. In our churches today, we should have the lowest common denominator for fellowship, high standards for membership, the highest standards for leadership. But in the final generation, everybody needs to be a leader. So you have these highest standards. Now, when the priest was getting married, he could never marry, well, let's read it together. The priests. They shall not take a wife that is a whore or profane. Pro means before, fond means the sanctuary. Neither shall they take a woman put away from her husband, for it's holy unto the Lord. So a priest could not marry a prostitute. They couldn't marry someone who was profane. They could not marry someone who was divorced. But they could marry someone whose husband or wife, or not husband, whose wife had, uh, whose husband... <laughs> please rewrite the tape, <laughs> had died. That was the priest. But now notice the high priest. Oh, wait, the daughter. The daughter of any priest, if she profanes her felt by playing the whore, if she profanes her father, she'll be burnt with fire. So there was a high standard for the priest and the priest family. And Jesus wants us to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
Now, notice what the high priest was about. The high priest, a widow or a divorced woman, he couldn't marry a widow, which means it's even higher than the priest. A divorced woman or profane or a harlot, these he shall not take. He had to marry a virgin of his own people. So in other words, the highest standards were for the high priest. Now let me ask you a question, just with all candor. Do you think a high priest would do dating like a lot of people do today? Uh, You understand? Do you think he would do courting? Of course he would. He got married. I don't know the difference between dating and courting altogether. I mean, I think we sometimes make too much of that, but don't, don't ever miss it. The highest moral standards are to be adhered to by a final generation because only the pure in heart will see God. How many can see why I then say, or use the word dating? It was kind of a misnomer, but I'm just saying the highest moral standards. Can you see how the sanctuary now applies to a final generation? Can you see that? I've covered just a few quick areas. But ultimately what God wants is his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because their father's name will be written on their foreheads. They'll be without fault. And Ezekiel says that his people, that God would be hallowed in his people before the eyes of those looking on. And Revelation says the earth would be lightened with his glory by looking at his people. The last rays of a merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. Of God are to manifest his glory in their own life and in their own character. They are to, to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. So at the end of time, the children of God are to manifest his glory. Could you put that on my pocket? All right. Through the church eventually will be made famous the final and full display of the love of God. And they will show whether they have chosen the side of loyalty or that of rebellion. I have some other quotes that I'll put up on the website, but let me just close with that final story because this is my last time with you. You see, God's final generation will have three things going for them. Number one, they will have settled it with God. Number two, they will be totally satisfied with God. Amen. And number three, it says they'll be sealed. When I was growing up, my mother did a lot of canning. And she had these cur jars. And she'd put the jars out there in Michigan. and She'd put all the different things in and she'd then put them on the stove. And she'd heat them up to can them. And as she heated them up, she'd say, that's what God needs to do to you, Donnie. Heat you up to boil out all the impurities and imperfections. That's what he needs to do to us, too. Do you want all the imperfections out, or should I just turn it down a little bit? I say, no, Mommy, turn it up, turn it up. I want the imperfections turned out. Do you like it when Daddy spanks you when you do something wrong? (laughs) No, but he's getting the imperfections out. Turn it up, turn it up. And then after they've been boiling for a while, my mommy said, I'm taking them off now. They've been boiled. And how did she know that they were ready to take off and they were totally done she would listen and then you would hear what you would hear those little jars ping and pop you know what she'd say Jesus is waiting for you to to pop like that he wants you to be sealed he's going to keep the heat up until you're sealed unless you decide not to do you want to be sealed and then she'd say I want you to be sealed and she would cry I saw my mother cry at least ten times growing up doing that. And as I think back on it, my heart is still touched that my mother still wants me to be sealed. She still wants me to have everything burned out so I can be ready to enter in. That's what God wants for you. He wants you to be in sanctuary with Him. He talks about these four D's not because he doesn't love you, but because he wants you to dwell in his presence.
fully settled in your mind, fully satisfied, and fully sealed. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're thankful that we can just look at your sanctuary and we can see that throughout the generations, you've been looking for a generation that will show forth your praises and your glory. And Lord, this convention has been named a generation of youth, a generation of youth for Christ, and we pray that it would indeed indeed be the generation of youth for Jesus. We've identified some things here that may cause us to think. And when the Advent movement began, as they understood the doctrine of the sanctuary, the early pioneers saw that they'd been wrong concerning the Sabbath, wrong concerning other things. The very first thing they discovered was that they needed to cleanse each other's feet. So they began washing each other's feet. And when they understood the Sabbath, some of them, even Ellen White, was rebaptized again. And some of us may need to be rebaptized. Some of us may need to recommit our lives to be cleansed because we want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we thank you and we come in Christ's name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.